2020 was a remarkable year when it comes to the topic of law and freedom. In just a few short weeks, we found that many rights that we assumed were guaranteed weren't really ours to enjoy any longer, at least not in certain parts of the country, as far as the powers that be were concerned. The infringement of rights and government officials breaking their own rules at whim are common topics of discussion these days, which makes a passage like the one before us all the more compelling. It's been a little while, so let me get us back up to pace with the story. Paul had gone to Jerusalem. While in the temple, he was attacked by a mob, was being beaten to death until the Roman garrison intervened. While being ushered out, he asked to speak to this crowd and the Roman commander, who's named Lysias, he allowed it. And Paul tried to preach to the angry Jews who had tried to kill him. And when he dared to mention the word Gentiles, the scene exploded and a riot began once more. Paul was saved again from the violent mob, but we will find him out of the frying pan and into a fire. In this famous scene, the apostle will invoke his rights as a Roman citizen in order to escape a terrible suffering, and the commander is the one who suddenly finds himself in a world of hurt in an astonishing reversal. Tonight, we can see two pictures to ponder. The first is a picture of our spiritual reality as Christians. The second is a picture of the unsuspected emergency that every unbeliever is in, whether they know it or not. But what about the civic freedom of it all? What about the rights? Isn't this a passage that shows us how to claim our rights as citizens of a nation? One beloved commentator frames the entire story as teaching us that it is our duty to exercise our protected rights when they are infringed as citizens in whatever country we find ourselves in. Listen, the Bible gives us a lot of direction when it comes to how to interact with the political systems of the world, with the backdrop being that the political systems of this world, no matter how good they are in comparison to others, are all fallen, corrupted, and fall very short of God's plan for the world, God's plan for your life, God's plan for human beings. There's nothing categorically wrong with enjoying rights and freedoms that are made available to us in a wonderful nation like ours. We're thankful for them. We appreciate them. We honor those who fight and serve and die so that those rights can be protected. But we can't very well look at this set of verses and say that it presents to us a doctrine of how and when to claim our rights as citizens in a human society. Because Paul did not always do what he does in this passage. In fact, in a very similar setting, back in chapter 16 of this book, he allowed himself to be illegally bound, illegally beaten, illegally imprisoned. He didn't say a single word when he could have until many hours later, the next day, in fact. In that case, he specifically refused to claim his rights for a particular purpose. He could have exercised them, but he didn't. So what was the difference between that illegal arrest and this one in chapter 22? And what does it mean for us in a time when we are feeling a mounting pressure against churches and against religious freedom and those sorts of things? Though Paul's choices can hardly be described as prescriptive for us, as usual, the way in which he carried himself through this strenuous situation should inspire us as we run our own races in our own situation. So let's begin in verse 23. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks 
directing that he be interrogated with a scourge to discover the reason that they were shouting against him like this. The scene outside the barracks was complete mayhem. Uh, I didn't think we would have such vivid examples given to us today. Uh, you know, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, you know, you know, I mean, we've been seeing some mayhem last summer or whatever, and then today, today, uh, something that most of us haven't ever seen before. Our Capitol building was attacked and violence was breaking out in the halls of the legislature. People were dying, being injured. Uh, that is what was happening uh, here in, outside the barracks. The crowd no longer cared that there was a contingent of armed soldiers, and those Roman soldiers would have no problem cutting all of these Jews down. Uh, but they didn't care anymore. They were blinded by their fury and their hatred. Despite everything that happens in this section of Scripture, the injustice, the corruption, the persecution, the unfairness, all of it, we never see Paul vent any anger, any cynicism, any hostility toward anyone. That is an amazing thing. Think through what Paul had just gone through. Number one, the whole reason he was in this mess is because some friends of his brothers there in the church of Jerusalem had said, we don't like that you cause friction telling the Gentiles that they've been saved by grace through faith. And even though we believe that too, we have this political scheme we'd like you to do so that we can ease some heat that we're feeling. And we don't want to you know, look bad in front of these this sect of Judaizers who are deep into fulfilling the law and staying you know, uh, uh, ritualistically Jews and being Christians. So we want you to do this, this little show in the temple. What a discouragement that would have been. So then he goes and he's on the hook to pay for these, uh, these guys that had taken a vow and he has to pay for their, their sacrifices and all that. He doesn't have any money, but he has to come up with money to pay for it. And then, not only that, he's there in the temple, he's accused of a crime that he didn't commit and he would never commit, a terrible crime. How discouraging that would have been. And then a group of hundreds of people single him out for beating. They try to beat him to death. And then he's taken by these Romans, treated really poorly, treated like he was this dog Jew who didn't know anything, didn't you know, he was some kind of uncouth. Aren't you that Egyptian who just causes trouble? All these things keep happening, happening, happening. He's about to face the scourge. All these things keep happening. None of it's legal. None of it's okay. None of it's right. None of it's fair. None of it's deserved. And Paul doesn't even show annoyance in the whole scene. He doesn't show anger. He doesn't show hostility toward anyone. Rage is not a fruit of the Spirit. It may be fashionable these days. It may be the currency that is used online or in political discourse in our uh, society today, but we are not to be a raging people. We are not to be hostile combatants. You know, as a Christian, we talk about how it's their spiritual warfare. We're sent out behind enemy lines. We use this sort of imagery, the armor of God. Those are all good things, and it's true but you're not battling against other people in the world. As was prayed tonight, our, the struggle is against principalities and powers. And when it comes to other people in the world, particularly those who are unbelievers, the lost, who are trapped in sin and darkness, 
You, your job is not to be a, a combatant against them. You are a medic. You're not a sniper. You're a rescue diver. You're not a door gunner. And I think sometimes we think, well, you know, we're on the side of truth and we're on the side of right and we're on the side of light and that's the side of darkness. And so I'm going to go out as a door gunner and shoot up these enemies of mine. And that's not what Jesus did. We all were at war with God and he came down in love and compassion and died in our place so that he could save us from our own guilt. In this world right now, especially everybody's mad about something. They're mad online, they're mad in person, they're mad on the television, everybody's mad all the time. What better time to be full of God's joy and God's peace? What a dramatic difference it will be compared to the angry, fearful hatred that permeates every level of society today. Everybody's mad, everybody's full of hatred, everybody's against, everybody's a combatant against someone else. And then Jesus says, why don't you guys go and be my body on the earth and be full of joy and peace? Why don't you go and show people the more excellent way, the way of love, and show people that God wants to rescue them, not destroy them. Now, Commander Lysias had a problem. Not only was he responsible to keep the peace in Jerusalem and things like riots were frowned upon in Rome, but if there was a riot like this, he could be held personally responsible for any property damage that resulted, according to scholars. And so this is a real problem. Imagine you were the, the sergeant on duty, the sergeant at arms uh, in the Capitol, right? You always talk about the sergeant at arms will remove the protesters, right? What if that dude had to pay for all the damage that was inflicted today? Right? I mean, but that's what's happening with Commander Lysias. So this is a real problem. Now, we're going to find that Lysias had a lot of power, at least temporal power. At the end of the chapter, he convenes the Sanhedrin and the chief priests. He says, you guys get together, and then they do. That's like an army captain, or again, the sergeant at arms. That's like him telling the Supreme Court of the United States, you're going to get together tomorrow, and you're going to hear this case that I want you to hear. And they say, yes, sir, we'll do it. So this guy had a lot of power in one sense. But as we watch Lysias, we'll see he doesn't go and talk to the temple police. He doesn't interview any officials who were there. He doesn't try to really get to the bottom of things in a um, thorough way. Nope. Instead, he goes to the, straight to the easiest method he had in his arsenal, torture. It's not fair. It's not due process. It's not necessary. But hey, it gets results, right? If anybody has watched 24, we know one thing to be certain, that torture gets results, whether you're the bad guy doing it or Jack Bauer doing it, right? And so that's, that's what he's thinking. He's like, we need to, I've got a lot of paperwork that I have to do. I have to get to the bottom of this. We need to blame someone for this unrest. And so let's torture this guy and get some kind of confession. This scourging that Paul was about to endure was the same that our Lord suffered before he was nailed to the cross. Paul had been beaten with rods before, for example, in Philippi, but this was the Roman flagellum. Many people died before their scourging was over. As a reminder for us here, I think, our hope cannot be in human governments or human systems. It just can't. Number one, it's, we're commanded to not put our hope in those things. But just on a common sense level, it can't. Paul was no dummy. But it's possible that, you know, he's being beaten within an inch of his life when the soldiers came in and said, hey, stop it. And I think it's possible 
that when the soldiers came and intervened there in the temple, he might've thought, oh good, I don't have to be beaten to death today. That's great. Now I'm safe because the government has stepped in. I'm here from the government. I'm from the government. I'm here to help, right? That's the idea. Maybe he didn't think that, but that would have crossed my mind. Thank you. Some centurions are here. Some dudes with swords are here. I'm going to be safe. But once out of the temple, he was not at all safe. Instead of being beaten to death, he was quite possibly going to be scourged to death. I don't know which one you choose. Do you want to be beaten to death with fists and feet? Or do you want to be scourged to death? Uh, These are not good choices. As David said, listen, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. The problem with chariots is sometimes they run you over. That's the problem. In this era that we find ourselves in, we tend to have a lot of our anticipation and a lot of our confidence wrapped up in political systems and candidates and parties, but our hope is in God alone. He alone is our rock and our salvation. Jesus Christ saving people is what is going to fix America. And that doesn't mean we don't get involved. That doesn't mean we don't vote. That doesn't mean we don't have a preference of a candidate and that we don't have positions on policies. I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying that I think it's clear, even in our own American history for the last 200 years, it's clear that human systems don't establish righteousness because men love darkness rather than the light. And what you actually need is for Nebuchadnezzar to become a Christian, become a believer like he did in the book of Daniel. What you actually need is for God to come and bring revival or awakening to a place like he has done so many times in so many places throughout human history. Such a great example, not only in our own nation a few hundred years ago, but in the nation of Wales. God brought revival, the Welsh revival. The bars were closing. The police had nothing to do. Crime went to zero. People were turning their lives around. That wasn't because somebody got voted into a particular office. It was because Jesus Christ went into people's hearts and changed them from the inside out. And so we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Now, verse 25 says, as they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who's a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? This is an amazing scene. There's Paul bruised and battered from the beating he'd endured. They bring him in, remove his shirt and his tunic. They take his hands, stretch him out, tie him down onto what might become his deathbed. Soldiers go and get the scourge from its shelf probably some linens for wiping off the blood and chunks of flesh that were gonna fly onto their uniforms in just a minute. And at the last possible moment, Paul kind of casually turns his head and says, quick question. (laughs) Why did Paul wait so long? We can't be sure. We don't know Paul to have a flair for the dramatic. We see a guy like Agabus in the book of Acts. He was a drama kid, right? In, in high school, there were band kids, choir kids, drama kids. So Agabus was a, was a drama kid. Paul did not seem to have a flair for the dramatic. He's a pretty straightforward guy, but maybe he was waiting for the spirit to lead him. Maybe this was a situation like Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac and he raises up the knife and then God says, no, don't do it. So maybe that was what was going on. Maybe Paul was doing the ministry math in his head. I think we can notice some important differences between this situation and a similar one in Philippi back in Acts 16. First, in Philippi, he was beaten with rods, though that would have been truly awful. 
there was a little chance he was going to die from it. Here, there was a very strong chance he was going to die. Lots and lots of people died from scourging, especially after you've been beaten severely, right? In Philippi, there was a brand new church being started, the very first church in Europe. And through his suffering, he was able to secure a period of peace for that church. But in this situation, going through with a scourge would, know, would do nothing to improve the standing of the church in Jerusalem. It would do nothing to change the government's pressure against Christianity. Uh, and so on the ministry level, there's, there's really no benefit for this suffering, which could be avoided. Throughout church history, we find that there are some who believe that suffering should be wholeheartedly embraced at every turn. We think of monks whipping themselves or doing other self-harm, climbing up stone steps on their hands and knees, these sad things that you read about historically. Uh, the idea is that if you, the more you suffer, the more you are automatically less sinful and more Christ-like. If you read the diaries of monks like that in history, you find that they admit that in their heart, very little has changed. Right? Because we can't just hurt ourselves to become more like Christ. But it's not just a medieval idea. One best-selling Christian author who leans more towards asceticism in his attitude and his teaching wrote in one of his latest books that though we shouldn't suffer just for the sake of suffering, we should desire it. He uses that term. Make it a part of our plan, he says. His reasoning is that suffering will always accompany true Christianity and that suffering helps us to become Christ-like. Now, we agree with both of those statements, that suffering uh, uh, accompanies true Christianity. And we agree that suffering helps us to become more Christ-like when it's allowed in our lives. And I think as a church, we here at Calvary Hanford actually spend a lot of time talking about suffering and how in this age, the church age, God's strength is shown through our weakness. But we do not see Paul searching out suffering, always embracing suffering or treating suffering as if it is a means to an end. That if he can just go out and get beat today, he'll become more Christ-like. That's not the case. Now, whether we are called to endure suffering at the hands of the Lord's enemies or whether we're able to escape it, that's up to the Lord. That's up to God's will. That's up to God's provision. Sometimes Christians are James, the brother of John, who's beheaded and martyred. And sometimes they're Peter, set free from prison. What's the difference? I don't know. But in God's will, there was a difference. Sometimes Christians find themselves in Acts 16 in Philippi, in that dungeon after receiving a beating. And sometimes they find themselves in Acts 22. Excuse me, you're not allowed to do this. But it's up to the Lord. It's up to the Lord's leading and guidance. Now, we remember that Paul had most definitely been promised that he would suffer a lot right from the beginning when Ananias came and restored his sight after the Damascus Road. We too, as Christians, are promised suffering in this world for the cause of Christ. The world hated Jesus. They're gonna hate us as well as we live out our faith. But the point of Paul's life was not to set a world record for suffering. I think he did, but that wasn't the point of his life. And it's not the point of our life either. So while we believe the Bible when it says that we should expect suffering and we should not think it a strange thing when it arrives and that we should trust God in it and rejoice if we are able to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, we also recognize that there are times when God does rescue people out of suffering and allow them to avoid it. 
We don't need to become self-flagellating monks in order to become Christ-like. We just need to follow the Lord. But neither is it Christ-like to expect to always be healthy, always be wealthy, always be free to do whatever we feel like doing. And so, like most things in theology, there are weird poles that people gravitate towards. On the one side, you have dudes who are flagellating themselves. What a sad and awful thing. This makes me more like Jesus. And then on the other end, you have, say, God's plan for you to always be healthy, always be wealthy, always do whatever you want to do. That's your best life. The Bible doesn't teach either of those things. Instead, the Bible teaches that suffering is part of the Christian life and that sometimes the Lord leads us through suffering. Sometimes the Lord uh, has us, asks us to endure it. Sometimes he helps us avoid it. Sometimes he helps us escape it. That's what we see on the pages of Scripture. Back into the text, Paul says he's a citizen, and in our modern, modern age of lies and liars, it's surprising that they take his word for it, right? Aren't you surprised that they're like, oh no, he must be a citizen. He doesn't have a chip or anything. So what are they, I was surprised. Uh, there are a couple reasons why they wouldn't have much doubt it, by this claim. First of all, to falsely claim to be a citizen of Rome was a capital offense, so people didn't do it. And then secondly, Archaeologists have found these small wooden tablets that Roman citizens would sometimes carry that served kind of like a passport and would prove their citizenship. Whether Paul had that or not on, on his person, we don't know, but people didn't just claim to be, you wouldn't claim to be a citizen to avoid scourging and then be killed for it, right? And so that's why, I don't know, I thought it was strange that they believe him right away. In Paul's wording, we see a beautiful picture of our spiritual reality as Christians. If you are a Christian, you are an uncondemned citizen in the court of heaven. Your guilt has been washed away. Your name has been added to heaven's role. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How does a person receive such an amazing gift? John writes, anyone who believes in the Son of God is not condemned. In Rome, there are all sorts of classes of people, slaves, peasants, citizens, soldiers, aristocrats. As believers, when the Bible says that we are uncondemned and that we are citizens, it's hard for us to grasp just how much God has done for us. He not only freed us from slavery to sin, but on top of that, he has granted us a forever home in heaven. On top of that, we're allowed to serve him as servants of the king. On top of that, Jesus has made us his friends. On top of that, we have been adopted as sons and daughters. And on top of that, included in the full inheritance that belongs to King Jesus. It just stacks and stacks and stacks of what God has done for us. And along the way, God has fully, finally dealt with your sin, removing it as far as the east is from the west, remembering our sins no more. That's the reality that you live in if you're a Christian here tonight. Of course, as citizens, sons and daughters, we are called to a life of worthy obedience to our God and to our Father. And as we all know through personal experience, we fall short of the standard. Look, the Bible says, hey, we, you know that you're a child of God if you obey his commands. And we know that we all are imperfect. We all fall short of the perfect standard. We all, like Paul said, Things I wanna do, I don't do. Things I don't wanna do, that's what I end up doing. So when we fall short, we don't excuse ourselves and say, well, who cares? I've already been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. We want to be uh, citizens, citizen sons and daughters who are honoring our king and well representing the Lord. But take heart by this verse, 1 John three twenty. whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus if you're a Christian. 
Don't live under condemnation. Live in the amazing reality of your spiritual citizenship. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, what are you gonna do for this man is a Roman citizen? Centurions are always interesting characters in the Bible. They are shown as men of decision and thoughtfulness and integrity. As a little devotional thought tonight, we should take note of this man's courage. His commander had been playing fast and loose with the laws of the land and the centurion you know, he's kind of sticking his neck out. This is his commanding officer. And he comes and he says, he sticks his neck out kind of for Paul, but also to, for Lysias, right? He's trying to help save Lysias from a very grave mistake. The centurion wasn't just gonna go along and say, hey, I was just following orders, just following orders. He, he didn't do that. When we find ourselves in a situation where something like this is going on, we should also take courage, show integrity, stand up for what is right. Verse 27, the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. Now we notice that Paul was still not aggravated, still not vindictive. He's still tied down, by the way. He's not screaming for their badge number. He's not gloating that he's gonna get all these people fired. You're fired and you're fired and you're fired. Actually, it could have been a lot more serious than that. And it's kind of a historical gray area. If they would have followed through with the scourging, those soldiers could have been executed for it. Even having not gone through with it, having bound him and done all of this, the punishment was gonna be severe. Everybody's gonna get fired at very least. But Paul's not smug or enjoying the fact that they had made this big mistake. He speaks peaceably. These guys were actively wronging him, but Paul does not categorize them as enemies. He just doesn't. He wanted these guys to be saved. In fact, even though Lysias was totally in the wrong, Paul never goes after him, even after, when everything shakes out. He never files a report. He never reveals what really happened that day. He doesn't blackmail this guy. He doesn't say, you owe me one. He doesn't say, man, I'm gonna have you one day. He doesn't do any of that. There were different ways you could become a Roman citizen at that time. We don't know who in Paul's family had won that privilege or for what reason but it was now part of Paul's inheritance. He was born into it. And this shows us more of our spiritual reality as Christians. You cannot merit membership in God's kingdom. You can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't win it. You, to have it, you have to be born, born again. And unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. First John 5 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father also loves the one born of him. Now, Lysias had bought or bribed his way into citizenship, which would have been quite a feat, especially if he had started off as a slave. But all his work, all his gains, all his status, it was all forfeit like that, just gone, gone. Paul could have filed one complaint and it would have been over. Not only could he lose his job for what he's done, like I said, had he gone through with the scourging, he probably would have been executed. Lysias' whole life of effort, all the money he had paid, all that he had given as a soldier of Rome, it was all for nothing. One mistake canceled it all out. It was all taken away. And everyone there knew just how serious this was. Look at verse 29. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander too was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. They didn't know that they had just done something that they would be condemned for. Did you know that you probably commit three felonies every day? <laughs> this is true. 
It's true technically, even if you have no idea that you are doing it. Some uh, law professor from Harvard wrote a book on this and there's other research that goes into it. Because there's a lot of crazy laws out there and there's always more and more and more and more laws. Laws like you cannot transport a rake from, I believe it's New York to New Jersey. That is against the law. If you've done that, you've broken the law, you're a criminal. We don't live there, thank goodness. But ladies, if you've ever visited Carmel, California, wearing high heels without a permit, you broke the law. That's true. It's 100% true. I couldn't find the municipal code on, online, but multiple outlets, including Ripley's, believe it or not, <laughs> cite, cite a Hanford, California rule, which stated that in our fine town, it is against the law to interfere with kids jumping in puddles. <laughs> it's on the internet. I tried to find it. But it's all, it's so. Now, those are silly examples. But when we apply this to the spiritual picture, it becomes very serious. The unbelievers around us who think they're just living their lives, doing their best, clawing their way up from the dirt, like Lysias and these other guys had done, in many cases, they have no idea that they are condemned to eternal death. Lysias just went to work that day and he thought, I stopped a riot and did pretty good. And then suddenly, with one phrase, it all came crashing down. He was gonna lose his position. He was gonna lose his rank. He might lose his life. And he was like, I, I was just doing what we all do all the time. Now, on the spiritual level, the people around us, lots and lots of them, have no idea that they are condemned that they have broken God's law, that they are guilty before a holy God and therefore are under his wrath, because they are. We all were under the wrath of God and that's why we have to take shelter under Jesus Christ, be covered by his blood so that when God looks at us, he sees not that I've been made right, but that he sees Jesus Christ's righteousness that I've been robed in. And he says, yeah, you're included. I've adopted you into my family. You're, because of what Jesus has done, you are made right with me. In the meantime, for those who have not been born again, they are under the wrath of God. And here's what that means. It means that they are on a crash course, crash course with judgment because they've missed the mark. They are sinners. They've made mistakes. They choose to do wrong. doesn't matter how big or how small. And here's what that means for us as Christians. People need to be told that they are sinners. Now, we're not to celebrate it or spit it into their faces or relish in telling them about hell. Rather, we should have the kind of urgency and compassion that Paul had for lost people. Sometimes today we'll see prominent preachers on television say things like, well, I want people to feel uplifted when they hear my messages. And so there ends up being a de-emphasization of sin. I knew that one was gonna be a problem. But people need to know that they are in serious trouble, that they are headed for a sentencing date and they are most definitely guilty. Commander Lysias realized that he was guilty and he was understandably afraid. So what would he do? Would he fall down before Paul like the Philippian jailer had and said, man, what do I have to do to be saved? Same conundrum. Well, here's what this guy did, verse 30. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Oh, Lysias. It's too late to be legal now. It's too late. You've already broken the law. You're trying to cover your tracks, but 
If Paul narks on you, you're in real trouble. We'll see, he tries to scheme his way out of this mess. He's gonna write some letters. He's gonna massage the truth. He's gonna try to cover his tracks. I wonder how long he lived in fear that this man, Paul, might reveal what he had done. Listen, if you're an unbeliever here tonight or listening to this message, you are like Lysias. You're guilty of a serious crime, not against Rome or the United States, but against God. And no matter what, you've tried to buy or earn or trade, you cannot pay the fee for your guilt because the wages of sin is death. You can't buy your way out of it. There's no hiding from God's wrath. There's no scheming your way out of it, no bartering your way out of it. It doesn't matter if you have power and influence and wealth and position like Lysias did. It can all vanish in a moment. One day you're gonna breathe your last breath and you will stand before God to be judged. And there is no escape for you unless you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You must be born again if you want to be saved because only for those who are born again is there no condemnation. No one can see the kingdom of God, the Bible said, uh, says, unless they are born again. You must become a child of God and be adopted into his family in order to be saved. How? By believing in his son, Jesus Christ. He and he alone has made it possible for us to become uncondemned citizens of heaven giving us a living hope and an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. If you're not a Christian, won't you accept this free gift that God is offering you right now? There's no other way out. There's no other way that man can be saved or person can be saved except by Jesus Christ. Now, for we who are believers here tonight, a closing thought. Being uncondemned does not mean that we will be undisturbed. We will, like Paul and all the other Christians that we've seen in this book, we're gonna face trials and troubles and setbacks and sufferings as we walk with God. Perhaps the Lord will allow us to avoid some of them by calling on the rights of our nation, perhaps. But when we do so, it's not for the sake of enjoying our rights, we do so for the sake of the gospel so that the message of Jesus Christ can better go out through our lives. We don't cling to man-given systems or man-given rights because we enjoy them, we're meant to navigate this world, whether you live in first century Israel, 21st century United States, 21st century Syria, wherever we find ourselves, Christianity works and is the same, right? I mean, it's not that, oh man, you're Syrian Christians or you're these Iranian Christians right now are getting like beheaded for Jesus. We got a different Bible for you guys. I mean, Christianity is Christianity. And the way that we navigate through life is by being led by God and letting his purposes be our purposes, his mind be our mind, his heart be our heart. And sure, there's gonna be times where he's gonna allow us to avoid or escape suffering, maybe using the laws of the land. But the purpose of our lives is to glorify God and to follow after him and to further the message of the gospel. That's the point of our lives. And as we interact with our government or with our society or with people around us, that's the focus. How do I further the message of Jesus Christ, which is for everyone? How do I do that? Do I do it by enduring this suffering? Do I do it by avoiding this suffering? Has God directed and provided for me to avoid this suffering? If not, do I suffer joyfully, rejoicing that I'm able to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? That's the Christianity that's presented to us in the Bible. And so look at Paul. 
while the whole city was shaking with rage, while Lysias' world was coming crumbling down, what's Paul doing? He's at peace. He's at complete peace. He's not foaming at the mouth. He's not demanding retribution. He keeps his calling and his purpose in focus. In this case, the Lord gave him leave to escape the scourging, but not so he could go on the attack himself, rather so he could continue to preach the gospel. And along the way, he showed complete undeserved grace to these soldiers, to the crowd who was beating him, to everyone around him. Our spiritual reality gives us present priorities. Even when we believers start to feel pressure from a God-hating world, we remember that God has brought us into a smooth place, a spacious place, leading us on a straight path, which leads to fullness of glory and sanctification a path on which we grow to become more and more Christ-like in our thought and our affections and our behaviors. And in the circumstances of earth that we find ourselves in, we are able to enjoy our relationship with God, even if we are joining in his sufferings. And along the way, we help others receive that salvation as we go. That's the deal. That's what we see on the pages of scripture. That's the calling. And now we trust the Lord to lead us in his perfect will because he will not withhold any good thing from us because we're his children. He loves us. Look at what he's done for us. Look at what he accomplished for us. Look at all the things he's piled into our account more and more and more and more as we keep thinking about all that God has done. Would he then just leave us dangling to be trod upon by the world? Of course not. He's a good father. He's a great king. And he's with us. He's directing us. And he has sent us out into the world to do what he did for us, for those who are still trapped in darkness.